The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Jacob Schultz, and it's New Year's Day, January 1st, and today, from the archives, we're bringing you an episode from 2017. It's a speech from Justice Department Prosecutor Mona Seidke about sextortion, a form of online assault in which perpetrators obtain explicit images or videos of their victims and use those images to extort further explicit content. The speech was given in conjunction with a bunch of work done by Lawfare's Benjamin Wittes and Quinta Jurassic on sextortion and offers a really helpful overview of what these prosecutions look like. Hi listeners, this is Quinta Jurassic. Just a quick note before we begin. This episode contains some material that's unusually explicit for this podcast, along with some potentially upsetting material concerning sexual violence. If that sounds like something you'd rather not listen to, consider setting this one out. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, April 22nd, 2017. Mona Sedke is a Justice Department prosecutor who focuses on sextortion cases, in which defendants blackmail their victims with explicit images and video into producing even more images of the same type. It's a kind of remote sexual violence, where perpetrators use the internet to assault victims who may be hundreds or even thousands of miles away from them. The Lawfare podcast has previously covered the issue in a conversation between Sedke and Benjamin Wittes, following the release of two Brookings Institution reports on sextortion by Ben, Cody Poplin, Clara Spera, and myself. Now, we're pleased to feature a talk given by Sedke on the same subject at George Washington University Law School last week. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 220, A Speech on Sextortion by Mona Sedke. What I wanted to talk about today was sort of, in the first instance, give a description of what is the crime of sextortion and try to give you guys a a sample of kind of what are some common fact patterns that I've seen in the cases that I've handled um, in particular. My my cases tend to focus on adult victim sextortion. There are many, many more that are involving minors, but the focus of my comments are going to be more about what I've seen in adult victim sextortion cases. So I'm going to describe sort of what is this crime, why is it important, And then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, like, how do we investigate it? What are some challenges that are unique to sextortion uh, investigations as opposed to other computer hacking or other types of cases? 
And then if there's time, um, I'll talk about how do we prosecute them? What's, what kinds of arrows do we have in our quiver at DOJ in terms of possible charges? Um, there's a whole panoply of different uh, criminal statutes that can come into play depending on the fact pattern involved, and I'll talk a little bit about what I charge and why, and if there's time at the very, very end, and I'll leave room for q and I'll talk about sort of special sentencing considerations because the key here for deterrence is to get some healthy sentences against the defendants who are committing these crimes. And I've sort of learned progressively after handling these for about five years how to try to get sort of the, 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 the toughest sentence I can in these situations. So first, what is sextortion? Well, there's actually no formal definition. There's no federal sextortion crime. It usually falls within the rubric of cyber stalking, and it has three components. There's, there's threats, there are demands, and there's sexual activity. And it is sort of akin to remote sexual assault at some level. And common fact pattern, uh, the defendant, who in my experience is usually a man, no offense to the men in the audience or viewers, um, the defendant will set up an online profile for himself using a fake name. He'll go to fairly extensive lengths to set up a fake Facebook page with a fake photograph, fake details about his story, and then he will try to strike up an online friendship with, uh, f with women. And usually the friendship quickly escalates into the, the defendant begging for topless photographs, Sometimes it will extend to begging for naked photographs, and usually when the begging fails, which it inevitably does, then he starts demanding the photographs and getting nastier and angrier. And usually the demanding, the demands don't work either, and then nine times out of 10, I would say he starts hacking into her online accounts using various techniques because then he's gonna to look to try to steal some photographs. And usually he goes and he looks into her sent mail. Maybe he tries to get into her iCloud or Picasso or online storage accounts. She doesn't even, often doesn't even know the photographs are there. She might have sent a photograph three years ago, one time and one time only to her boyfriend and doesn't realize that it's still sitting in her sent email account. So then he'll steal the photograph and, and now he has control of her account usually, so he will often lock her out or deface her accounts. And at the same time, he starts peppering her with um, harassing communications, basically threatening to distribute the photographs if he has in fact gotten photographs, or he'll, he'll have other threats to keep locking her out of her account, he'll threaten to delete her account, he'll threaten to make purchases off of her account, um, usually of a sexual nature and have them sent to her home if it's an online like Amazon account. And, and so he's got a variety of threats that he makes and then he usually will demand sexually explicit photographs. So he'll say, you know, I'm gonna post this photograph unless you send me a topless photo of yourself or a fully naked picture. The demands vary too. Um, I'd say topless and naked photographs are very popular demands. Uh, masturbation on Skype or on a, on a telephone call are also very popular. Um, sometimes all they want is a response. I've had one case where he just wanted a responsive email. He said, you know, I'm going to post this unless you answer me, answer me, answer me. And so sometimes they want PII. They want, they want more information about the victim or the victim's friends so that they can then start sextorting the victim's friends. So the demands, the demands vary, the threats vary, the sexual activity varies. 
sometimes um, there, 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 there is a high degree of, of control usually in the demands. So they will often give time deadlines. They will demand specific poses. They will demand specific objects. They will demand um, a strip tease, and they will ask for a specific item of clothing to be removed at a specific time at a specific place. And there's just a very high degree of control. The threats and the communications are also laced with, um, with details about the victim. Very, very personal details. The defendant at this point knows where she lives, where she works, who her parents are, all of her friends and family communications, where her, who her professors are. Um, and, and so in the backdrop of all of these threats and demands is a high degree of knowledge, intimate knowledge of the victim. And laced within all of that is often either explicit threats to rape the woman or implicit threats to rape the woman. So for example, the, the case that I just had sentenced um, last month, uh, the, the threat would say something like, and please excuse my explicit language, but it, 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 the, 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 um, the defendant would say something like, I'm going to have fun f***ing you on Halloween, or I'm going to f*** you this summer. And so these women who are getting these, these threatening and demanding communications, they now have a person who knows where they live, knows everything about them, and is either explicitly or, ex or implicitly threatening to sexually assault them. And so um, another common theme is a lot of times the defendants uh, very cruelly and, and unnecessarily, quite frankly, distribute the photographs. They follow through with their threats and they distribute the photographs uh, a couple of different ways. It might be a very targeted distribution where they send it to, I, I had one where they send it to the person's mother. That was actually a, a male victim. Not all of the victims are, are women. This was a, a young man and the, um, the defendant sent a naked picture of the young man to his mother with sort of nasty, cruel communications along with the photograph. Sometimes they'll distribute it on a much broader basis. They'll post it on either the, the girl's hacked Facebook page, they'll create a new Facebook page either in the, the name or some slight misspelling of one of the victims so that everybody can see it. And then they'll start doing friend requests to the victim's friends and family in the same time that they're sending taunting communications back to the victim saying, if you don't give me a naked picture by 10 o'clock, I'm going to friend request your mother. And then they'll list the name of the, the mother and the, the uncle and the whatever. And then they'll, they'll follow through with the threat. Um, so I would say other, other common features, they're, they're sort of divided into the buckshot approach of sextortion where they may have hundreds of victims that they're trying to sextort. Or they, off, or they may know the victim, either very, very closely or barely at all. It might be, I have a couple of matters where it's, it has been the current boyfriend. And um, the current boyfriend will set up a fake online identity and start stalking, basically cyber stalking his own girlfriend, which is, which is disturbingly getting more and more common. Um, I would say that sometimes it's just one victim, sometimes it's 25, sometimes it's hundreds. There's really no paradigm for that. Um, the common communication platforms they use, there's a lot of spoofed text messaging, Skype. Uh, if, they ca if they hack a Facebook page or they create a fake, fake Facebook page, they'll use Facebook Messenger, Kick Messenger, other types of platforms. 
They like to assault the woman sort of from all different fora, so she gets text messages, she gets Skype, she gets Facebook messages. Everywhere she turns, she's got the same person coming at her on different platforms, always harassing her all day long, basically. For Sometimes it can last weeks on end, sometimes it can last, the last case I had, the guy was extorting this, he was totally obsessed with two of his 25 victims and he was going after them for the better part of four years. Um, the demographic of the victims, I, my cases have typically involved women in their late teens, early 20s. Uh, the demographic of the defendants are really all over the map. I would say they are all men so far in my cases. Uh, I have some that are married with kids. I have others that started when they were teens and went through their mid-20s. I have some that are in their mid-30s. Um, so there's really no set demographic. I will say that in terms of sort of what are the drivers of the, of the crime, in, in my view, at playing sort of armchair psychologist, it seems like this is sort of an anger, um, violence crime. It's not a sexual gratification crime. And the reason that I think that is not just sort of having interviewed the defendants and I've read a lot of their communications, but um, they're not just hoarding the photographs. That's not enough for them. There's something about forcing the women to create pornography for his benefit that is what's the driver here. There's some, there's some anger, um, violence by proxy thing going on here. Um, the other major reason, so, sort of why is this a federal crime, why does DOJ care? Um, the, the emotional injury here is really, really significant. Um, even just one victim. I mean, this, this can be a really devastating crime for these young women. And um, this is essentially, you know, being forced to create pornography for someone else's benefit. And, um, and that is a, a devastating thing to have to go through. There's, there are lots of different aspects to the injury. There's a lost privacy, there's a humiliation of having your photographs and your PII posted widely. There's a fear for your relationships with your community, with your family, with your bosses. There's also a very real physical danger fear. I mean, these women almost universally believe that their cyber stalker is right around the corner and is going to jump out at them and attack them. And so if you read these, these victim impact letters, these women, they're sleeping with knives under their pillows. They are getting escorted to work every night. They're, they can't go to work for weeks at a time. They can't sleep. They're depressed. Some of them grow suicidal. Um, they, they believe that uh, they have no idea. I, a case that I had a couple of years ago, the guy was actually in London. And, but he was, he was targeting uh, sorority, women who were in sororities and college age women and aspiring models in the US. They had no idea that this guy was overseas. And, and they, he made it very clear, he wanted them to believe that he was right around the corner to basically be more coercive. So there's a, there's a major physical safety component that these, these women are, are fearing for. And the behavioral and emotional impacts are, are very real and, and very long-lasting. I had a sentencing hearing in New Hampshire last month, and three victims came forward and spoke at the sentencing hearing. And I've got to tell you, I, this was now four, four years after they had been victimized, and it was as if it were yesterday for them. I mean, they are still really living the impacts, especially for the ones whose photographs uh, got out. 
I mean, the, the, those women will have their photographs or the specter of their photographs out in the ethernet uh, forever, essentially. And so the injury is really serious. Um, when I am thinking about what kinds of cases do, you know, do I think are going to get the best sentences, I look at how many victims there were, what are the ages of the victims, um, how persistent was the threat, did he just sort of hit it and move on and you know, try one, one woman and say, give me a picture, and she blows him off, and then he goes to the next, or was he really insistent in going back and peppering her over and over and over for weeks and weeks on end. I look at um, how, what is the physicality of the, of the communications and the threats. I reread those communications again and again and again, and they make me sick to my stomach, quite frankly, and I can't sleep at night for a few days after I've read them. But you really do get a sense of like the sick factor and, and, and how are they laced with threats to rape the woman, implicit or explicit. Uh, many times the woman will threaten to go to the police and then he will then enhance his threats to her. And so I look for those kinds of things, like how, how nasty is the exchange? Um, I also look for whether he, what are the photographs? Are they topless photographs? Are they sexually explicit photographs of genitalia? Um, I, I look at the sort of nature of the photographs, how many photographs he's gotten, whether he in fact distributed the photographs, totally unnecessary. I mean, the crime is, you don't need to, the, the crime is committed with the threats. Whether he went the extra step and distributed the threats, um, I care a lot about, and also how he distributed them. Did he distribute them to one or two people, or did he distribute them online? I mean, those are all things that judges consider when they're deciding how to sentence somebody. This is a, this is a growing problem. I, was, I, I had such a great day last spring, I think it was May of 2016, um, there's a cadre of us at DOJ that work in this space, and we all of a sudden I, I get my email and, I'm, and, and I see that there's this Brookings Institution report that came out on, on sextortion, and it was sort of a two-part report. The first part was sort of analyzing the problem. The second was proposing a legislative um, ideas, and it was, um, it was like manna from heaven for me, quite honestly. I just was like, oh my gosh. There's, there's somebody, there are people out here like you all in this room who really care passionately about this issue. And I was so delighted that it's gotten so much attention. DOJ has a very long-standing commitment to this area. We've been bringing sextortion cases for the better part of 10 years. Um, DOJ takes it very seriously. In my experience, the judges take it very seriously. I've gotten a three-year sentence, a five-year sentence, and an eight-year sentence in the last three cases that I've brought. And I, I always worry um, when I'm filing a sextortion case, I worry about whether a judge or a jury is going to get it, is going to understand this crime. And, and I'm happy to say that, at least in my experience, universally they, they do get it. They take it very seriously, and, and they've been hammering these defendants. Um, and I'm hoping that that will be a, a deterrent effect. Uh, okay, so that's sort of what is sextortion and, and why is it important? How do we investigate it? Well, there are some challenges unique to sextortion cases. Um, getting victims to come forward is probably the largest one. Um, and I had a, the case that I had with the embassy worker, we had, we had evidence on our side that there were at least 75 victims who had been sextorted with photographs of themselves. We were only able to find two complaints that had been found, that had ever been filed. And so um, getting victims to come forward and realize that they haven't done anything wrong 
They, are, they have nothing to be ashamed of. No one is judging them. They are victims, and we really need to hear from them. Um, that's a real challenge. A lot of times uh, when, when we do hear from a victim, there's an ongoing crime. So they're very traumatized. These are very delicate women. Um, they're young women. A lot of times if they do come into the police, they're bringing their parents with them. Um, and so as you can imagine, interviewing a, a victim who you have to look at the naked pictures of her with her there and maybe she wants to have her parents there or not. It's a, it's, a delicate, um, it's a delicate victim interview. And so, so step one of our investigation is interviewing the victims. Um, then we have to immediately gather all of the communications. And there's a tension here because the victim wants to delete all of the communications and delete all of the accounts as quickly as possible. She doesn't want to relive this nightmare. She doesn't want anybody to see it. And we want to collect all of the communications. We want all of the photographs. We want both sides of the communication. As far back as they went, we want to know how he initially targeted her. Because a lot of times, their OPSEC, their, their operational security gets better as time goes on. Maybe two years ago, they were using an email account with a domestic provider, and I can get attribution on that old email account. And now maybe they're using Tor or some more sophisticated technique. So I need all of the communications and photographs as quickly as possible, despite the fact that my victim wants to get rid of them as quickly as possible, which I understand. The other thing, the other, the other challenge is um, in, in gathering all of the communications is I do need to see both sides of the communication. There is no problem if the victim has, has dished it back to the defendant. That's not, I, I don't care about that, I expect it. And it doesn't matter if there are salacious, flirty back and forth initially. It doesn't matter if, if initially there was some romantic exchange. I don't care. I don't care whether the photographs were given willingly in, in a flirtatious context initially. I, I just need to see the whole rubric and, and know what I'm dealing with, basically, with, with, with each victim. So I need to get all the communications. So I do that when the victim comes in. I have her bring her devices. I get consent. I, I, I do screenshots of all of the text communications. I have her log in. I bring a, a, a laptop with me in the interview, and I have her log into her accounts so that I can download and take Facebook and take screenshots of the Facebook messages or whatever the platform is. I need to gather all the communications. Sometimes I'll get consent to actually do a search of her phone or her devices. Um, not always. Um, and I, I will then go hit the, the providers with, um, with legal process to corroborate her, um, her testimony. And so I'll send a slew of grand jury subpoenas out to any of the, the accounts that were impacted. I try to, any, any of the sender accounts, a lot of times there will be 15 or 20 different accounts that the guy's using. He'll have 15 different spoofed text, uh, text message accounts. He'll have three different Facebook accounts. He'll have all these different online names. And I am in a flurry of sending legal process all over the country, often on an expedited basis, to try to get subscriber records, IP logs. Um, eventually, I do search warrants to try to get content on the target's accounts to see if I can find more victims, photographs, find the messages. Um, I. Sometimes I'll have an undercover agent take over the woman's accounts. 
if I am to help me find out who the defendant is. So I'll have, I'll get consent from her for my agent to take over her identity, take over her account, and communicate with the defendant to see if we can smoke out some identity information about him. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll put a pen, I'll get an order for a pen register or trapper and trace device to put on the victim's account if there is an ongoing uh, crime so that I can get IP logs coming in because that to me is usually a good indicator of, of what computer the guy is using. Sometimes what I also do is I take basically the dirty accounts that he's using to communicate with the victim and then I'll go get subpoenas on, the, on his clean accounts. Once I, have a, once I have a suspect in mind, I probably don't have probable cause to go get search warrants on his accounts, but I can, I can get a grand jury subpoena to get his, his IP logs. And then what I do is I just match up the date and time stamps and I look at, you know, the dirty account is sending this sexting, sextortionate message on this date and time stamp, and lo and behold, the same IP address is logging into the, the target's clean Facebook account or his email account. And that is another way that I can figure out who it is who's behind the criminal conduct. Eventually, when I start drilling down to who the target is, I do get probable cause, and I'll go get a search warrant, and I'll go and I'll go search his various accounts, the dirty accounts. And there's usually a treasure trove in there. A lot of times, they might have selfies that they didn't realize they've taken. Usually, there may be thousands and thousands of email messages, and my agents will read them and find maybe one needle in the haystack where he slipped up and he actually used his own name and sort of made an online purchase or has a Dropbox account and, and used his own name. And, and, and so usually there's one slip up. <laughs> Sometimes it's only one and it's in 10,000 messages, but it's usually there and that's how I find my guy. And then comes the time to arrest. And so there's a, there's a tension here because I want to get this guy off the streets as soon as humanly possible because he's victimizing not only my victim, but God knows how many other victims out there that I don't know of yet. So I need to get him off the streets as, as soon as possible, but I also need to find victims and I need to gather evidence. And so I typically, sometimes I'll go in and I'll, I'll, I'll charge him by a complaint so that I can get him off the streets right away and I'll get a search warrant for his devices to try to get his laptop or his cell phone and then see what I can find on those. And then what I'll do is sometimes I will dismiss the complaint without prejudice while I'm, while I'm continuing my investigation to try to find more victims. Because the key is to try to find the universe of victims, both in terms of letting them know um, what's going on and also in terms of jacking up the defendant's sentence, quite frankly, because the more victims, there's a huge correlation between the number of victims and how high his sentence is. Um, so that's sort of how I do my investigations in general. Um, I, I would say that typically the attribution is, is you know, it, it the defendants have a varying degree of sophistication. I have a couple investigations right now where I'm really stymied because they're they're very sophisticated and they're using techniques that are that are making it very difficult for me to figure out who they are. Others, um, not so much. And and so I I've had pretty good luck identifying uh, targets and and arresting them and getting them charged. And and in terms of sort of what do I charge them with? My favorite statute is 18 U.S.C. 2261A, which is the federal cyberstalking statute. 
And the reason that I love that is, uh, first of all, it's, it's a fairly straightforward statute. The elements are, you know, course of conduct, use of the internet, and attempt or reasonably likely to cause emotional distress. So it's not, it's not a heavy lift. Um, and the sentencing guidelines are quite good. Um, the base offense level, I think, is a 17 or 19, and you can get an, a two-level enhancement for a, for a pattern involving the same victim. The, the crime does not group. I don't know how many of you have taken any classes in sentencing, but um, if the, the crime doesn't group, so each time you have a victim, that gives you a, a sentencing bump. So if I have five victims, I get another five-level adjustment in my sentencing. And that can bring a sentence up to the, the three to four to five-year range. And fortunately, the judges, so that's not a bad starting point, three to five years. The, typically, um, judges are very willing to vary upward. As, as, as um, rare as upward variances are, in my experience studying sextortion sentences, um, judges seem very willing to upward vary by as much as 30%. And um, a number of those factors I was talking about earlier, those aggravating factors about what were the photos like, how long did it last, how many victims were there, um, did he go through with it and distribute the photographs and follow through on his threats. These are all um, 3553 factors that courts use in their discretion in deciding to vary upward from the guidelines. And so, so I'm very pleased to say that um, the courts are taking this really seriously, DOJ is taking this really seriously, the investigative agencies are. Um, we're here to help, we care a lot about this area. Um, I love these cases and I, my other hat is doing more garden variety computer hacking cases and I love those too, but I really love having this mix of, of the cyber stalking sextortion cases with my sort of nerdier, geekier DDoS and whatever cases. Um, and so, and I love the fact that people care because this is a devastating crime and these women are, are really, um, really hurt and, and I care a lot about them and it just feels great that, um, that, um, my, that I'm in this area and, and I get a lot of support from, from DOJ to keep working these cases and so. So I, with that, I was going to open it up to questions. I'm happy to. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. 
it was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. 
so what would you say the role of the online intermediaries like facebook and instagram is in curbing the spread of extortion so the question so the question was what is the role of online intermediaries in terms of uh curbing this so let me answer that in two different ways so one is i have gotten incredibly uh excellent response from u.s providers uh, when I go to them with a sextortion case, I will often ask for emergency disclosures or on an expedited basis, or I'll give them a search warrant and I'll let them know um, the, the nature of the case, and they will put it at the top of the heap, and I get my search results very quickly. Um, so from a law enforcement standpoint, I have been really happy with the level of cooperation I've gotten from the providers. I think they take it very seriously. When I say sextortion, they don't care whether the victim is a minor or an adult. They, they are on it. Um, I also think that in my experience, when the victims go and ask for takedown, uh, my understanding is, and this is just secondhand, that the providers are very um, ready to comply, and they will. So for example, the victim in my, in my last case who had the fake Facebook page of her, she had a fake Facebook page with a fully naked photograph of her with her face on it, and she notified Facebook and, and the page was taken down. So I think they're quite responsive. Most of the providers now have abuse uh, buttons and they man them or woman them. Um, they, 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 they're on it and they respond quickly is my understanding. Yes? So you talked a little bit about attention, but what do you do specifically when you have someone who comes to you and they're still being harassed and obviously they want it to stop now, but you're trying to gather evidence? How do you balance out those two interests? Because I can imagine she's ready to be completely out of that that's a great question. So the question was, how do I balance the victim's need and desire to have the communications blocked and deleted and the guy caught versus my need to continue the investigation? And I had a case recently where I asked the victim. It was a one-victim case that I knew of. There were probably others, but I, hadn't, I wasn't at the point yet where I knew whether there were other victims. And I asked her. She was an adult. And I said, you tell me what your threshold is. You tell me when it's gotten too hard for you, and I will go. I can arrest him tomorrow. But if I had my druthers, I would have another couple of weeks here because I've got some subpoenas in place. And I, and I actually leave it up to the victim to some degree, if I can if I have some, some play. Yes? You mentioned earlier that most of the victims are younger. Do you see any evidence that a lot of the victims are college-age students or is it more prevalent in universities between students or like that? So I had a case in Atlanta where the, the target was definitely, I, I, we got his Google search history, so we knew specifically what he was looking for. And he was definitely searching for colleges and sorority members in particular. Um, I, and I, I, would, I would venture to say that in my cases, most of my victims are early 20s, late teens. But as I said, I think, I think the, the vast majority of sextortion cases probably, unfortunately, involve even younger people. The, the child pornography offenses are handled by a different section at DOJ. There's a group of prosecutors across the country and at Maine Justice that specialize in child exploitation crimes. And I, that's a different that's a different group. I'm not I'm not very familiar with those statutes, so I don't I don't bring those types of cases. But I would say um, I would say that yes, I think it is women in their early 20s. I can't say for sure whether it's college or not, and I don't know whether it's college student on college student. Um, I do think there are a fair number of sextortion cases where the defendant does know his victims, even if it's just barely knows them. 
But I don't have a fact pattern in my milieu that involves that. Yes? You talked about one of the perpetrators being in London. To what extent is this, are there perpetrators around the world that you think that you'll be able to bring a case against them for the acts, to get cooperation to bring them into the United States courts? The question was, the questioner was asking, was commenting about my talk earlier about the London defendant, the defendant who had been, he was a U.S. citizen, he was working in an embassy, the U.S. Embassy in London. And the question was, to what extent are we able to bring perpetrators either to the U.S. or, and I'll just add to your question, or funnel a case overseas and have it prosecuted overseas. I think this is definitely a worldwide crime. I don't think that these are only U.S. individuals who are committing it. There are, if we had not, in my case involving the person who worked at the embassy, luckily for us, he happened to be visiting his family in the U.S., so we didn't have to extradite him. But our plan was to go through the extradition process. And in my experience, I've extradited a number of foreign nationals from a number of different countries. And as long as we have extradition treaties and there's dual criminality with the other country, we can pretty successfully extradite people. Sometimes it takes a while. And back to what I was saying earlier, you know, the delay, when you have an ongoing sextortion crime, you don't really want to let a sextortionist play out the extradition process. And so that's, so extradition's not great. It's not a great option, but it's there and it works. Here, one of the things that we can try to do when we arrest somebody is get pretrial detention. So we get them put in jail while they're waiting for their trial. And even if I always ask for pretrial detention, I have only once successfully gotten it, but I've gotten things that are decent proxies. I've gotten another guy on house arrest where he has to wear a GPS ankle monitor and can't have any Internet access to his home, can only have a flip phone, and has a lot of monitoring for his pretrial supervision. But I, so that's the downside of an extradition situation, is I'm not sure that I would be able to get them put in jail for the six years or the two years or 18 months that it's going to take for an extradition. The other problem with the extradition is, this is maybe too much of a tangent, but when I was talking earlier about wanting to get the guy off the streets as fast as humanly possible, sometimes I'll charge on a narrow one-victim case, knowing that there are probably dozens, if not tens of more victims. The challenge in an extradition situation is once you submit your extradition package to the foreign country, you're stuck with those charges. You can't expand. You can't supersede. If the person's in the U.S. and you're going through the U.S. court system, you can indict a person on January 1st, and then on March 1st, you've now found 20 more victims during the course of your investigation, so you can supersede and add more victims to your charges. In an extradition context, you can't. You're stuck with what you initially charge with. I mean, you have a window of about 90 days from when they have a provisional arrest warrant on day one, and then maybe 90 days later, you have to get your extradition papers in. So you have that window to try to get more victims, but it's challenging. Yes? So when you do have these perpetrators who hack into accounts, do you ever try and add on CFA violations, or does that kind of just muddy the waters too much? 
No, that's a great question. So my second favorite statute, it's very fact pattern. Um, dis I always charge 2261A, uh, especially since 2013, the Violence Against Women Act amended 2261A, so you can now charge it. It's much broader, and you can charge it when the defendant and the victim are in the same state, and it's just, uh, you can charge temp attempt, for example. Uh, my other favorite statute is 18 U.S.C. 1030A7, um, which the CFAA, I didn't repeat the question, I'm sorry. So the question was, do I ever charge CFAA, which is our garden variety hacking statute, 18 U.S.C. 1030? Almost always. If there's a hack into an online account, um, that involves extortion, 1030A7 is a beautiful statute, and it also has great guidelines. I think it all, it, its base, I think, is, is a nine, and is 19 as well. Um, there are a couple of other arrows in our quiver. 875D is the interstate threat statute. I don't love that because the guidelines are pretty low, and there's a two-year statutory maximum. Um, 1030A2 is the hacking to get information. The problem with 1030A2 is it tees off of a part of the sentencing guidelines that's 2B1.1, which is the financial crime, financial fraud section, which doesn't really get you where you need to be in a sextortion case because these are not really monetary crimes. And so I don't, sometimes I'll charge 1030A2 because it fits, but I much prefer 1030A7. It's 2261A and 1030A7 that are driving the, the, the sentences. I also get vulnerable victim enhanced. I always try to get a vulnerable victim adjustment with varying degrees of, of success, but, but I always try and, I'm, and I go to the mat for the vulnerable victim adjustment because I think it applies in every single situation, to tell you the truth. Yes? Uh, you were saying that some perpetrators are more sophisticated than others, mm -hmm. and I, I was thinking of, of cryptography that you were on today. So I would like to know how much of a hurdle current cryptography techniques are for your implementation. If you have an idea, a positive idea of in this print crime specifically, how if more or less criminals use sophisticated than you, and how is cryptography harder? So, yeah, so the question is sort of how does cryptography negatively impact my investigations and, and how much am I seeing it? I'm not really seeing cryptography. I'm seeing encryption um, more and more, I would say. Um, and it seems like there are just two completely different buckets of perpetrators. There are some perpetrators who just don't use Tor. They don't use encrypted communications. And they're just not thinking about it, I guess. Um, and I prefer those, <laughs> um, not to be cute about it. Uh, encryption is a real problem. And uh, encrypted devices are a real problem. And encrypted communications methods are a real problem for me. And they're making my job a lot harder. Um, and so I. You know, I it, it just it's a, usually we get there. Usually we get where we need to be, but it's it takes a lot longer to, to get there. Yes. Hi, uh, in your experience, has this crime been gender specific, or there have been men on the victim side and women on the? Uh, Let me repeat the question. Are there? Are, is this sort of a gender specific crime? Um, and in my experience with the adult victims, uh, most of the victims are women. I've probably had 150 victims in my various crimes and that I personally have prosecuted, and I've got two males. And I think they were almost by accident. I think they just fell through the cracks. 
um, he did not seem to be targeting men. Um, that said, he didn't shy away from a man when a man came within his purview. Um, but I think that um, just anecdotally having read some other cases involving minor victims, I think there are a lot of sextortion crimes that involve uh, young boys, quite frankly. None of mine, but... Um, and I do have a new matter that might involve a female target. I'm not sure yet. I'm still learning who it is, but I'm pretty sure it's a woman. So that would be a first. I do think that sometimes uh, women might be engaging in sextortion. Yes? So I know uh, I did a paper and it was more about just general harassment against women online. And I was wondering if that has become uh, part of your topic too. So I know like, a lot of female journalists get these communications that aren't necessarily like send me pictures, but they're more like, I'm going to rape you, or here is a photo of me raping your child that I photoshopped for you, or just like those kind of things. And so, you know, they're not asking for anything in mm -hmm. return. So, so the question was, what if, what if there's just sort of cyber harassment against women writ large, but it's not necessarily sextortion with photographs? And how, and how do I? I have a, a number of cases that are just pure cyber stalking cases, and there's no sextortion, and it's, and it's just straight online harassment against. It, my victims happen to be women. Um, and uh, 2261A applies nonetheless, and uh, and so does the CFAA. So would 1030A7. If they're hacking to mess with you, uh, there doesn't have to be any sextortion component at all to it. And we still take those cases very seriously because, as as you pointed out, um, you know, they being threatened to be raped and and having your PII posted. Uh, where the, the perpetrator makes it clear that they can either send people to you or they know where you are. Um, that is a devastating thing to happen, and, and we would look at those cases as well, too. I have a number of those. Yes? I'd imagine that most of these cases go unreported, and you can't really know that these crimes have occurred unless somebody comes forward and tells you. So what are the factors that need somebody to... to in your experience, to decide that this is something that they want to talk about? And then are you finding that doing these cases and raising awareness is bringing more victims forward to you? The question is, that's a great question, and the question is um, how do I, basically how do I get victims to come forward, so to speak? Um, I think that uh, a lot of victims, um, a lot of a lot of victims are not coming forward. I think there is a lot of unreported sextortion. I, I one of the unenviable tasks that I have to do is sometimes notify victims because once we get one victim to come forward, we get into the defendant's account and we find out that there are a hundred more. Those are victims who made a maybe made a purposeful decision not to come forward. And, and it's very delicate to go approach those women. And I would say that my victims fall into sort of two different categories. Um, I was getting ready for a trial in a sextortion case a couple months ago, and so I was preparing my witnesses for trial. And um, some of them were very, very eager to be there. They wanted to be there. They were ready. They, they, um, and in that case, let me just, an aside, this case had involved about 25 high school students. And one girl and her mother, one girl told her mother, and her mother and the girl came into the local police department, and she galvanized her friends to all come forward. And eventually, 25 incredibly courageous young women came in with their parents to the local police and filed complaints and brought their devices 
And there were many others that, I, that we know of um, that chose not to come forward. And you know, we let that go. We're never going to make anybody come forward. I'm not ever going to make somebody come and testify uh, at trial who doesn't want to be there. Um, and there are ways to anonymize. I obviously I never refer to the names of the victims in any court filing. I refer to them as Jane Doe's. Even at sentencing hearings, we can anonymize them. Um, we let them, with the court's permission, we let them only identify themselves by Jane Doe or their initials. Um, and so, so usually one brave soul comes forward and sometimes we can either get her to encourage, if she knows other victims, to bring those victims forward. Um, I, my hope is that, that public speaking and public awareness will just let victims know that, like, I start all, all, out all my victim interviews telling people, like, I am not here to judge anybody. I, I don't, you, these people haven't done anything wrong and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And by the way, I'd say 75% of my victims, they never gave photographs. There aren't any photographs. They're still hacking and stalking without any photographs. And so, and the ones where they did give the photographs or the photographs were stolen, it's no different. I, I don't care. Um, and judges don't care either and juries don't care. And so, um, so I do think that, uh, but there are some understand understandably reluctant victims. I, I'm flying out of town next week to go interview a victim, and she's already been interviewed twice. And um, so she's going to have to relive this nightmare for me now because there are a couple things that we need to get some more information on. And, and, and I, you know, I'm very candid with my victims and just tell them that I'm, I'm proud of them for being here and I know it's hard, and, and to just reassure them that they're very real and important victims to us. Yes? Um, my question is more about prevention of this crime. Are there any educational programs, especially like for minors and their parents, to identify possible situations that can end up in extortion? Or is this more of a policy question? You know, there is, there, that's a great question. The question is like prevention and are there resources available for people to help avoid being victimized in the first place and basically what do you do once you are victimized? Um, the FBI has a pretty good, uh, I think about a year ago, they did a big public service announcement with DOJ, uh, especially geared towards the, the minor victim um, population. And there is some pretty good um, online material about uh, what to do if you're a victim and um, in terms of like how not to be victimized in the first place, you know, oddly, there are, there are actually some pretty good, um, there are some pretty good resources online for if you choose to take private photographs of yourself, what can you do to keep them private? But I'm not going to go into that here. Because <laughs> one more question. Yes. Do you know how many victims have taken their own lives? Um, how many victims have taken their own lives? So um, I don't know the answer to that. I will say that... Uh, one of the, I, I had a victim in one of my cases who committed suicide. And it was after the defendant was sentenced. She was a, an adult with a child. Um, and I can't say that there was a one-to-one -one correlation between the sextortion and her suicide, but I will say that she was devastated by this. And she came to the sentencing hearing and gave a very eloquent description of her pain and fear. And, um, and, uh, and I will say that I've read a lot of 
of communications back and forth between victims and the defendants, and it is not uncommon. Uh, I was just reading one a couple days ago, actually. Uh, I have a new case, and I'm reading the chats, and they make me want to vomit. And the woman is saying, I'm going to kill myself. And she's alive, uh, but this is how they feel. And, and I have to say, just as an aside, if you, if you saw the, 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 the forced pictures that they take, they're cowering. They're so afraid. They're shrinking. And they're, they're basically being controlled remotely, and they're having to take their clothes off. And just, just the, the, the expressions on their faces, it's, it's horrible. And when they send the photograph back, you know, one of my victims sent a photograph back very reluctantly with the tagline that said, have a nice life, douchebag, I hate you. And if that doesn't give you a sense of, like, what kind of feelings these women are having. So, you know, I don't know about, about actual suicide numbers. Um, fortunately for me, I, I haven't had that in, in my cases yet other than that, that one. Thanks. Thank you. I'll, I'll answer questions over here. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to the George Washington University Law School for providing audio of the event. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks if you haven't already. And please do give us a rating and review in the iTunes store. If you're interested in listening or reading more about sextortion, you can find links to Ben's previous interview with Mona and our Brookings reports on the show page. As always... Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.